Ciao amici. Welcome to Cinema Italiano, the podcast dedicated to the Italian experience as told by film. Today, we'll be talking about Pietro Marcello's 2019 film, Martin Eden. As a quick news item, a new release that just opened in November 2022 is the Italian film Strangeness, or La Stranezza. It's a comedy by Roberto Ando, starring Tony Servillo, in the role playing the role of real-life playwright Luigi Pirandello as a fictionalized telling of the inspiration for his play Six Characters in Search of an Author. Within just a couple weeks of its release, it has already become the highest-grossing Italian film of the year. Martin Eden has been a favorite of mine ever since I first watched it. I got to see an early screening of it at Cinema Italian Style in fall 2019, and then at the Palm Springs International Film Festival in early 2020, and it quickly skyrocketed into becoming one of my favorite Italian films of this century. As both a searing character study and an exhilarating political statement, its intellectual and emotional powers elevate this movie into something truly transcendent. Martin Eden is an adaptation of a 1909 novel by Jack London, originally set in Oakland and the San Francisco Bay Area, but here it's been shifted from early 20th century California to an unspecified time period in Naples. The costumes and technology provide visual clues as to when we might be, but some interesting choices arise and the vision of Naples that feels rooted in the past suddenly lurches into our contemporary setting. As a quick synopsis of the film, Martin Eden is a sailor who, through a chance encounter, becomes introduced to the wealthy Orsini family, including their daughter, Elena. He is immediately stricken by her beauty and her intelligence, and strives to become a worthy suitor for her by improving his social standing. He wants the quickest path of upward mobility, finding education and apprenticeships too time-consuming, and he becomes fixated on writing as his ticket up. In parallel, the socialist movement is gaining steam, While Martin considers himself an individualist, a social Darwinist, his growing outspoken confidence in his political views make him a figure of public interest, and it all but severs his ties with Elena and the Orsini family. He continues on writing, driving himself into deep poverty by neglecting to earn income while pursuing his passion, until at long last his writings begin to sell. By now, though, He's hit rock bottom, and he's past the point of no return. And the possibilities and future that he once saw with Elena, and that writing once represented, becomes a long-lost fallacy. His spirit is completely disillusioned and embittered, finding no joy in his material wealth, his circle of loyal followers, or even in Elena later reaching back out to rekindle their romance. In that moment, he has a vision of himself, youthful, optimistic, and full of potential, and he follows it down to the shore. Another man walks along, declaring that the war has started, and we see black-shirted fascists on Martin's left and a group of refugee migrants on his right. Martin looks ahead to the sun, trudges forth into the sea, and swims out to the horizon. Martin Eden has a grandiose, timeless, out-of-time quality, heightened by formal elements plucked across different times and places. 
A hallmark of Pietro Marcello's direction is his use of archival footage, interspersed with the scripted narrative he's telling. From the very beginning of the film, we're plunged into working-class Naples through documentary footage from the 1920s, including May Day, commemorating the labor movement. The piazza is full of men handing out wine bottles while a speaker engages the crowd. This cuts straight into the opening titles, and then we see Martin himself aboard a ship, editing together images filmed today with archival footage from nearly a century before. The song we hear during this scene further warps our sense of time with Picere, a bouncy pop song from 1980, a musical choice that immediately feels anachronistic with the footage that we're watching. Its upbeat mood fits the optimism and future ahead for young Martin, but if we were trying to ground ourselves within a particular historical setting, this song quickly throws us off. The interwoven archival footage not only contextualizes our setting as glimpses into the world around the story and what's happening in the bigger picture, but it creates lasting recurring images that heighten the impact of the narrative. Both early in the film and towards the story's end, we see color footage of a young boy and girl dancing, a juvenile happiness or perhaps obliviousness, as Martin Eden is just getting his start at the beginning, juxtaposed at the end with his ultimate spiritual downfall. We also see, multiple times, an archival image of a sailing ship being rocked by the waves. At first, it's edited alongside footage of Martin's time as a sailor, almost like an exterior shot, establishing the moments of him on board. And this ultimately has its payoff moment towards the end of the film, as it sinks in unison with the decay of Martin. These images, themselves primary sources of their particular time and place, are here recontextualized through editing into a fictional narrative at different milestones throughout that story. This archival footage is frozen in time on its own and peppered throughout Martin Eden's life as an ever-present, inescapable connection of a repeating history and an inevitability that is prolonged. The timeless quality of Martin Eden is also subconsciously felt through its cinematography, immortalizing the relationships and, at times, power structures between Martin and the women in his life. Within specific moments, we see shot-reverse shots that are displaced or don't make rational sense. Early on, there's a scene of Margarita, an admirer of Martin's, watching him, and it's nighttime in her background, while it's daytime for Martin's, and then we see them dancing together in one single frame. In different times and spaces, she gazes upon him, expanding the interaction from one singular moment to a larger macro feeling and relationship. In a similar vein, after an argument, Martin returns to the Orsini family home to speak to Elena. One of the servants dismisses him, saying that she's not there, and she refuses him entry. This all takes place out in the grounds of the estate, surrounded by trees and a fair distance from the house. But we cut to Elena, watching him from an upstairs window, though reasonably she would not have been able to see what transpired. Her placement is also elevated higher on the second level, up above him, further emphasizing her power standing 
and unreachability by someone lower class like him. These cinematic flares of shot-reverse shots that don't quite make sense grow what could be individual moments into something even greater, transcending beyond the rational into the fundamental realities and manifestations of these relationships. No matter where or when Martin is, Margarita is looking out for him, and Elena is looking down at him. To shift gears into politics, much of the political backdrop of the film is the gradual rise of socialism. Some of the earliest images we see are archival footage from May Day in Naples during the 1920s, including the appearance of Enrico Malatesta, an anarchist and socialist of that era. Martin and others in the working class face extreme working conditions and low wages, suffering abuses from unfair foremen. He stumbles across several socialist rallies, open forums where speakers call for radical change to combat the exploitation of the lower classes. And at a social gathering, Martin reads Rus Brissendam, who becomes a sort of mentor for Martin and who sees socialism as an inevitable outcome. Martin, however, rejects socialism in favor of individualism and social Darwinism. He is deeply influenced by the writings of Herbert Spencer, believing in survival of the fittest within society, that each individual must work to rise above their station. His critique of socialism is that the individual becomes lost in the collective, and that organizing only places a new master in charge, and no one is better off as a result. His firm alignment with individualism could very much be a result of his relationship with the Orsini family. Elena insists that through education and hard work, Martin can achieve upward mobility. And though his pursuit is through his own reading and writing, there's a clear through line as his attitude develops to one of, if I can do it, why can't they? Martin rejects socialism also because, he argues, through socialism and unionization, the collective becomes elevated above the individual, and that the individual becomes buried by the weight of the masses. He does not see structural change, such as the granting of power and agency to a collective body such as a union, as being beneficial to the individual, as such gains would only feed the head of that collective and not trickle down to that individual. At the same time, though, Martin's insistence in going it alone, in practice, isn't the liberating ideal he champions. He himself is bound to power structures through class differences, and he struggles to break through to literary publishers, the gatekeepers to his own success, and his odds of making it hardly seem higher through this approach. It's at a party where Martin happens onto Russ, who is also an intellectual, who advises Martin that socialism is inevitable. While a writer himself, Russ doesn't see literature as the means to affect change. He doesn't publish his work, and he sees transformation as only possible through the collective, a sentiment that Martin disagrees with. Martin's individualism is so strident that it leads to an explosive argument at the Orsini family's dinner table. He critiques the father of the family and another dinner guest, both of whom consider themselves classical liberals in favor of free markets, yet they support anti-competitive government regulations 
which is itself an expression of socialism. The two regard Martin's views as radical, and he digs down even deeper, affirming that he is one of the few true individualists in Naples. The rejection and repression of new, contrary political ideologies also takes form through the shadows of fascism. While not as present in the film as socialism or individualism, we see socialist rallies broken up by men in black shirts, of course, repressing the political dissension at its roots. The emergence of fascism within Italy was also an extreme manifestation of the rise of nationalism, looking to form one single homogenous cultural identity, which we see echoes of within Elena and the Orsini family. While not explicitly presented as fascist or nationalistic, Elena regards the speech of Martin and the working class as incorrect, improper Italian, when it is in fact a legitimate language, Neapolitan. Her take is that there is one cultural identity, both in tongue as well as her way to do things, through education and work. It's a unitary mindset that doesn't allow room for or acknowledge the varying identities, viewpoints, and perspectives that coexist outside of her purview. She's not necessarily fascist yet, but her bourgeois naivete about how the world should work is no doubt an early symptom on the path to nationalism and fascism. Embedded into the film's political content, a strong current permeating throughout the story, are themes of upward mobility and ultimately disillusionment and corruption of the soul. A strong element of Martin's individualism, encouraged by Elena and the Orsini family, is his drive for upward mobility, transcending his lower class standing to become successful and worthy of becoming Elena's husband. In fact, our first image of his younger self is evocative of this optimism and potential. Martin is climbing stairs on board a ship, photographed from below, facing up, with a big open blue sky above him. The possibilities for young Martin are limitless. He sees literature and becoming a writer as his ticket up from being a working-class sailor and laborer. Devoted to his craft, he spends all his waking hours writing, submitting pieces, and rewriting, driving himself to starvation and sickness up until a work becomes accepted and he finally gets the big payout he's been waiting for. He goes to tell his mentor, Russ Brissenden, only to learn that he has killed himself. Time suddenly lurches forward to Martin, now older as a successful writer. He's surrounded by an entourage, his agent, his friend, and his on-and-off love interest, Margarita. Everyone is waiting on him, devoted to him, and looking to please him. Martin has undergone a full transformation, though. His physicality is different, with blonde hair, yellow teeth, squinting eyes, and an unshakable scowl. He's short-tempered and nasty, snapping at those around him, when once he was kind and considerate. He's become completely disenchanted now that he's only receiving attention because of his success. The words and the message of his writings haven't changed over time, only his class status has. His descent is poetically visualized through the scene of older Martin seeing his younger self along the shore. How different these two men are, one with an arm full of books, eager to learn and to prove himself, while the other 
is sour and embittered, having fully proven himself and become emotionally bankrupt. Another recurring motif throughout the film is the power of education and art. A memorable visual from an early scene is that of Martin having a meal at the Orsini family's home, and he uses his plate as a metaphor. If bread represents education, and the leftover sauce represents poverty, the bread, as education, can be used to clean up and remove poverty. This perspective is echoed and elaborated on by Elena, who insists that Martin pursue a formal education rather than skipping a few steps and going straight to writing. Martin's fear and shame is that he's so far behind that to finish grammar school, he would make a fool of himself as a fully grown adult learning alongside children. The fast track to success through writing helps him save face and not go through a disciplined, though potentially embarrassing, pursuit. His interest in art and education is sparked by what he encounters in the Orsini household, books of poetry and paintings on the wall. An irony is that one of their paintings is of a sailboat, romanticizing the life of a sailor, while the actual sailor in their home is thought of as less than. But just as the Orsini family sparked the interest in him, Martin in turn helps inspire the next generation, the family of Maria, the woman he stays with when he moves out to the countryside. Later in life, when he's become a success, his story has inspired her kids into reading and pursuing art. It echoes back to what a socialist companion says at a dinner party, that change comes not from writers, but from the people. Martin, intentionally or not, has in fact made some impact on this next generation. The musical soundtrack for the film has lyrics fitting with Martin's hopeful spirit, particularly early on in the film. Picere by Daniele Pace is an upbeat pop song in the Neapolitan language. Its lyrics speak of love, translating to English like, when I see you pass, I feel all the sun in my heart. Martin's life as a sailor is also echoed through the song, evoking the mariner's life with the words like the wave of the sea and connecting with one's love aboard a ship. Its optimistic tone both in its major chord structure and its steady tempo, are like the rhythm of Martin's outlook at this stage of his life. The next song, Salute, by Joe Dassin, is like a wistful letter written to one's lover. It describes traveling far from home, reflecting on one's life, and doubts whether what they shared is just a lost memory. It plays as Martin is away from home, having taken up a job in Genova, and he's determined to educate himself. Being away from his love, he's in a stage of balancing, keeping the flame alive with that interior fear that what he and Elena share may be slipping. We next hear the song Volia e Turna by Teresa Desillo, a pop rock song about yearning to return to a loved one and to a place in time. Its lyrics even call out Naples specifically, 
romanticizing its streets and alleyways as landmarks of the singer's memory. It plays in the film as Martin returns from work to go back to Naples, his home and where his love, Elena, lives. The musical score by Marco Messina and Saccarici also adds to the timeless quality of the film. Alternating between more classical piano and strings to more contemporary sounding with a pulsing bass drum and electronic instrumentation, guitars, and keyboards. This driving energy is an exciting undercurrent, like the sound of Martin's determination as he continues to go deeper, growing more entrenched into the political atmosphere around him and fueling his aspirations. In addition to the musical selections, the film's cultural imagery and settings add further depth to the characterizations and themes. In particular, the dual personalities of Martin and the broad spectrum of time. Following the death of Russ, there's a sudden shift to a duel between two figures, one in white and one in red. The dueler in white is about to be defeated, and it's revealed that he's Martin, whose agent offers money to the dueler in red to save him from being killed, and Martin is then carried away to safety. Martin and his opponent are dressed as the Commedia dell'arte figures Pulcinella and Arlecchino, respectively. Pulcinella, the figure in white, is known for being a social climber, similar to Martin, striving to improve his standing to become worthy of Elena. Pulcinella also has a dualist nature, as a superior above the common man, but looks to appease those above him in a higher social standing. This internal balance is particularly powerful given where we are in the film. Martin is experiencing a sudden shift in standing as he's about to go from rags to riches, from a life of poverty and near starvation to becoming a voice of authority, influence, and power. In terms of geographic setting, most of the film takes place in Naples, the coastal city in southwest Italy. One of the specific locales we visit is the Antro della Siviglia, the Cave of the Sibyl, where Martin and Elena walk during their courtship. In real life, the cave is described by Virgil in the Aeneid, where the oracle, or Sibyl, lies acting as a guide to Aeneas in the underworld. It's fitting that this is a location where Martin and Elena have a conversation, considering they both offer each other windows and pathways to the other's world. Martin as the working-class street life of Naples, and Elena the world of bourgeois education and wealth. Some other locales featured in the film include Caserta in Campania, which is the countryside where Martin stays with Maria and her children. Caserta is also where the director Pietro Marcello is from. We're also briefly in Genova, or Genoa, further up north, which, like Naples, is a powerful coastal city. While we are clearly oriented in terms of place, Naples, Caserta, Genova, our time setting is anything but specific. I spoke a bit earlier about the anachronistic, almost eternal, ways in which time is played with throughout the film. And it reaches perhaps its strongest rift at the very end, on the beach where Martin is told that the war has started. On the left-hand side, we see a group of young men wearing black, 
fascists, and on the right, a group of African immigrants, reflective of the very contemporary situation of refugees fleeing Africa to the north. Within one single space, we get the looming horrors of World War II, paired with a contemporary political crisis, two distinct moments in history within Naples and all of Italy that still coexist and co-mingle even across decades. The fascists and hyper-nationalists of today would no doubt oppose the coming migration of refugees, and these historical moments are both disparate and also interdependent. Fascism and immigration aren't even the core narrative themes at play, but these firm start and endpoints broaden the scope, impact, and relevance of Martin's story beyond whenever it quote-unquote truly takes place to fitting really any time from the early 20th century up through today. Pietro Marcello, this film's director, is just in his mid-40s and has decades ahead of more innovative, challenging, and exciting stories to tell. But at the time, Martin Eden feels like the magnum opus and culmination of everything he has done up to that point. The interconnectedness of different regions of Italy, as well as the isolation of those who travel between those spaces, is captured in his 2007 documentary, Crossing the Line, and it's evoked here through Martin's largely solo journey throughout the country and through society. Crossing the line follows train passengers, including long-distance commuters and drifters who essentially live on the trains, traversing the length of the country from regions rural to urban. Similarly, Martin's travel by train or by boat brings him between his urban reality, the pressures of his romantic life, to a peaceful pastoral living in the countryside in Caserta. Another parallel lies with Lost and Beautiful, Pietro Marcello's first scripted feature. This film also has the Pulcinella figure as a main character. In Lost and Beautiful, Pulcinella is like a mediator between the living and the dead, encompassing the duality I mentioned earlier. His role between life and death also has a poignant resonance here in Martin Eden, where Martin essentially loses his soul for this final act of the film. Pietro Marcello is originally from Caserta in the Campania region, and he went on to study painting at the Naples Academy of Fine Arts. His first films actually started in documentary filmmaking with short subjects before his first scripted feature, Lost and Beautiful, in 2015. Among his most honored works include The Mouth of the Wolf, a documentary, Lost and Beautiful, and then Martin Eden, which went on to win Best Adapted Screenplay at the David Di Donatello Awards that year, as well as the Volpi Cup for Best Actor for Luca Marinelli at the Venice Film Festival. For me, Martin Eden is truly one of the best Italian films of this century. It's a fascinating character study that is both intellectually compelling and emotionally heartbreaking. It sets a high bar for stories that can feel both epic and intimate, with a larger societal, philosophical meaning, balanced with individual humanity and its downfall. In terms of class consciousness and a growing awareness for politics, it reminds me quite a bit of Lucchino Visconti's La Terra Trema, which also follows a young man born into a poor fishing family who's also striving to break out of a cycle of poverty amid the backdrop of a growing socialist movement. 
As always, thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your choice of podcast platform. You can also follow the show on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Until next time, ciao, Michi.